So what, what say you about this child that we've sung about? What do you know about this child? Do you know him as not just the Savior, but as your Savior? And again, because our plumb line for knowing what's true and what's false is the Scripture, the Holy Bible, we're going to again, again turn our attention to that and read several passages. And last night we looked at, at several witnesses. We looked at uh, Gabriel's witness, his testimony of, of, what, of the message that he conveyed to, to Zacharias and then to Mary. We looked at the testimony that was given by um, Elizabeth and by Mary and even by an unborn John the Baptist. This morning, we want to look at several more witnesses. It's, it's really amazing that, that the Lord wouldn't have to give us so many, but he did. He gave us an abundance of witnesses. And in the end, those will help encourage our faith. Or those very same witnesses will, will come to testify to your conviction that you turned away from, from the Lord. And I pray today that, that they will be witnesses uh, to encourage your faith or to bring you to salvation but they will do one or the other. You will not remain unchanged by these witnesses. So hear the witnesses that speak of the identity of this child born to Mary so that you might have faith and salvation in him and rejoice in him as God your Savior. We want to turn to the Gospel of Luke. So if you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we want to begin by looking at the testimony of Zacharias. Luke chapter 1. This was after the birth of his son, John the Baptist. So just pick up and read to you, verse, beginning at verse 67 of Luke chapter 1. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemy, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Think about what Zacharias has declared, really through the prophecy, through a prophecy from the Holy Spirit. In verse 68, Zacharias says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He's looking at, at redemption as already accomplished. He's speaking of it in the past tense. Although Jesus' life, his, his death, his resurrection is all still in the future, it's as good as certain. He is prophesying the certainty of that redemption. 
And he mentions Israel, but remember Israel was to be a blessing and to be a, a channel of redemption of all the nations. So it's, it's not just of Israel, but that's who he speaks of immediately. And then look at verse 76, speaking to his little child, his son, which is just born. He says, and you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. Now, if you just stop there, you could interpret that as well. He's like all the old all the other Old Testament prophets. He, he spoke from God. And indeed, John is the last Old Testament prophet, even though he's in the New Testament. He really is of those, of those prophets before Christ. So he's saying, if, if he just said that, we might think, well, he's just one of those prophets. But look at what he says next. He says, for, that tells us why he's saying that, that he's the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now he's referring to Old Testament prophecy when he's speaking this, but he's speaking it prophetically. And he's saying that, John, you will prepare the way for the Lord, that is the Messiah Yet to be born. The Messiah who is alive in Mary's womb at this time. But not yet born. So Zacharias who through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is speaking out the truth. That John the Baptist is going to go before the Lord. Now that keep in mind the word Lord. Can mean just master. That's its basic definition in Greek. It just means master. But often in the New Testament. That that term Lord, when it is used of Jesus, is doing something far more significant. And that's what it's doing here. He's not just saying, you'll go on before your master. This is the Lord. So the New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when they, when they uh, quote or paraphrase Old Testament passages that speak of Yahweh, in the New Testament, they use the Greek word kurios or Lord. Right? And they do that intentionally. So what is he saying? This child is going to be a forerunner, not just to a high prince or a master, though he, Jesus is both those things, but to God himself, to, to Yahweh. Right? That's the amazing thing about this prophecy that, that Zacharias gives us. It, he is to go before the Lord. This, John the Baptist would go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give his people knowledge of salvation. What, what a wonder that is. John called people to repentance, as we know. He's called John the Baptist because he largely ministered through a baptism of repentance, calling people to repent of their sins for the, for the kingdom of heaven is at, is at hand, is what, he was, what he's saying, to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And, and think about what he, is also, what he also says there at, at, in verse uh, 77. He says, to give his people, the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. How were they to be saved? Right? Many in Israel were looking for the redemption of Israel in a physical sense. They wanted a, a Messiah to come rescue them from Rome. But here the prophecy particularly talks about a redemption, a forgiveness of their sins. Uh, to this salvation by the for forgiveness of their sins. And he says in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God and then Pay close attention to verse 78, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. That sunrise, is that, is that talking about the normal sun, the normal sunrise? Right? It's using poetic language to talk about this child who is yet to be born, who are celebrating his birth this morning, is spoken of as the sunrise. Why? 
He gives you the context. The sunrise and high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. So if you've got the New American Standard Bible or, or the Legacy Standard or one of those versions that, that capitalize letters when, when the New Testament writers are either paraphrasing or quoting Old Testament Scripture, you'll see that, that that's what's going on there. So the Holy Spirit is giving Zacharias prophecy that, that meshes with Old Testament prophecies already given that point us to who this child is this child is going to be the light that shines in the darkness and just as we read from john chapter one that's exactly who jesus was he was the light of the world that that came to shine in the darkness though the darkness did not comprehend it he came to shine light and to to provide comprehension to all those whom he would call to himself so understand this this great testimony. And, and John in, indeed did this. He pointed to Christ. He was the forerunner for Jesus. And John chapter 1 verse 29 um, tells us that, that one day when, Je- when John saw Jesus walking towards him, he, he said to those who were around him, he was probably, he was baptizing because Jesus indeed was coming to be baptized. He, so John looked at Jesus and said to those around him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John is pointing to Christ. He's preparing the way for Jesus Christ. So based on the testimony of Zechariah, which is ultimately a prophecy of Scripture, so it's coming from our Lord. Based on his testimony, we, we must conclude that the child is the Most High God. He's Yahweh himself who has come to redeem their people from their sins. So that's the testimony of Zacharias. Let's see the testimony of that comes next. And here we move into chapter 2. And the testimony I want to point you to is not a person. But it speaks nonetheless. What am I referring to? Prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy speaks as a person. It testifies to the fact that Jesus is who he really said he is. There's two in particular I want to point out, but let's just read verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2. Actually, we'll just pick it up. Um, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn, or the guest room if you have the Legacy Standard Bible, which helps us understand a little bit better. Bethlehem was a very small little town, right? Very unlikely that it would have an inn in the traditional sense that we understand that, that term, right? But there's two prophecies that are fulfilled in this passage that I, I don't want us just to blow by. The first one is the place of the Messiah's birth. The place of the Messiah's birth, which is Bethlehem. You know, Joseph and Mary, they weren't from Bethlehem though they were related they both were related to David they weren't living in Bethlehem they were living in where Galilee and in, in Nazareth so how was God going to get 
those two to Bethlehem right? so that Jesus would be born there. How did he do that? Through a census that was taken. And historians will tell you that they'll debate about this. They can't really pin this down. And, and people without a high view of scripture will cast doubt on this saying, Luke just made this up. Well, I'm telling you, Luke didn't make it up because he tells us that in the very beginning. He tells us that we read it last night in Luke one and the verses following Luke wrote. He researched these things and he wrote them out carefully so that you would know with certainty. Keep in mind, Luke, he's not an apostle, is he? So what authority? Whose authority did he write under? Luke researched all, did, probably did all this research while Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea Philippi. Who did he have access to? Everybody that was there, right? So we don't know, you know, what was, uh, at this time, Joseph had died. And we don't know anything about him, but Mary was still alive. So he did his research. He investigated everything carefully. And he wrote it down with certainty under the authority of the Apostle Paul and really the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So these things are certain, even if we can't explain it, even if we can't pinpoint when, you know, we don't have all the details to pinpoint when in human history all these things happened. They happened with certainty. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why is that so important? Why did God need to move them from Nazareth to Bethlehem? It's because of a prophecy in Micah 5.2. You're probably familiar with it, but I'll read it. In Micah 5.2, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Listen, Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathath. And that, and that second term is important because it, there, there's another Bethlehem it could have been confused with. So this is the Bethlehem in Judea that's near Jerusalem. So... But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathath, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. You say, even there, Micah is saying, a, a child is going to be born. He's going to be born there in Bethlehem. He's going to go forth as a ruler in Israel. And, but yet his ways are from everlasting. He's called the ancient of days. He's speaking, Micah, prophetically speaking, of this child yet to be born. So it's important that the Messiah be born in Bethlehem. That detail gets lost later on in Jesus' ministry. And the Pharisees and Sadducees just think Jesus is from Nazareth. Because Jerry, uh, Mary and Joseph end up going back to Nazareth and, and living there. So they, they just discount Jesus as a, at least as a prophet because he's from Nazareth. And how could any good thing come from Nazareth? That little detail gets lost, but it's not lost in the Gospel of Luke. It's not lost upon Luke's uh, prophecy. It's a very important part of that. It shows us that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. He is this long foretold Messiah that that, um, God gave us many prophecies about in the Old Testament. One other prophecy that serves as a testimony to us that I want to mention is, is the fact that Mary as a virgin gives birth to a son. And th- this flows from a, a prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14 is a, is a direct promise from God. There was an evil king and, and the Lord was confronting him. And the Lord asked that king to, to, to ask for any kind of sign that the king wanted. 
And God would give him to that sign as proof of, of trustworthiness of God's word. And that king refused, said, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's not for me to, to give a sign. So he really showed disrespect to God. And God said, oh, I'll give you a sign. Let me just read that for you. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Which we know from the New Testament means God with us. Again, historians try to research this. They try to figure out, you know, what, what son were they talking about? Was this really a virgin? Yes, the, the term is, is a virgin. It's not just uh, for a, a woman um, in, in general. It, it is for a virgin. A virgin will, will uh, give birth to a son. And notice that his name will be called Emmanuel. There's, there's no other person that can be spoken of in the Old Testament. So Isaiah can't be speaking about a historical figure or a child. It can't be speaking about one of Isaiah's children. This is speaking about God himself. God with us. And Matthew gets the connection with this. So just to go out of Luke for just a moment. Matthew 1 verses 22 and 23 connects the life of Jesus with Isaiah 714. That the divine conception that fulfills prophecy. And I'll just read that to you. Luke, there Matthew says, Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So, so Matthew makes that connection under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the virgin conception of Jesus is important. It's important not just because it fulfills scripture, right? So it's important because it does fulfill scripture, but it's important because through the virgin birth, the the Messiah is both 100% God and 100% man. This is the way that, that, that the child within Mary was a son of Adam and a son of heaven. He's a son of God and a son of man both and Jesus' humanity is important because it's through his humanity that he can fully represent us he's not half man half god he's all man he's a hundred percent man therefore he could fully represent us he could fulfill the law on our behalf and he could go to the cross and die for our sins on our behalf and yet he it's important that he be a hundred percent god because if jesus would have been a perfect man only he could have died for one of the person's penalty of a sins, right? Life for life, right? That's the way it works. But because he's 100% God, his death was of infinite value and he could pay the sins for everyone who come to believe in him. Complete payment, all done, all because he's God. So that, again, this is why it's important that, that Jesus is both uh, God and man and it's, it's, it's the importance for why the New Testament speaks about the, um, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the conception, virgin conception of Jesus Christ. It's a miracle from God, Holy Spirit creating what was needed within Mary to form, um, to form baby Jesus. So based on the testimony of just these two prophecies, there's lots of other prophecies about Jesus that he fulfills that we can look at. But just these two that, that are mentioned here in, in Luke chapter 2, you must conclude that the child is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. 
Right? I keep saying the same thing, reaching the same conclusion, but we're hearing from, from different witnesses. Right? But they're building a case, an irrefutable case, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Let's turn to another witness. This time the testimony of the angels, beginning in Luke chapter 2 in verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel, angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Let's just pause there and think about what the angels are testifying to. What, what, are, they, what are they saying? So this angel appears to shepherds, right? Rather ironic that that the announcement of the Savior's birth comes to shepherds, right? You would think, at least the Pharisees and Sadducees, would have thought that if God were going to come among them, that, that he would come to them, right? Not to some shepherds. Remember, shepherds had an important role within Israeli society. Watching over the sheep, sheep were, were a main, um, not only main source of food, but very important animal in the sacrificial system that went on in Jerusalem. And though they had an important job. They were disdained. They were looked down upon. So they were the lowly. The outcasts so to speak. So it's ironic. That the Lord chose to reveal. The Savior's birth. To some lowly shepherds. Again it just shows the Lord. Uh, just His choice. In these things. So the angel here is not named. Could be Gabriel because Gabriel went to Zacharias. Gabriel went to Mary. We simply don't know. But he goes to the shepherds with with a message. This angel stood before them. And if you look um, in verse 8, it says the, 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 an angel, not the angel, but an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. So we don't know if the, the angel was kind of in the heavens and standing in the air or on the earth. I, I get the impression that it's that this angel came and looked them face to face. So standing there before them. But then what happened next? Before he could say anything else. The glory of the Lord, what? Shone around them. Now that glory isn't coming from the angel. This is not the angel's glory says the glory of what glory of the lord shone around them right so don't get the impression that these angels are somehow projecting some kind of glory unto themselves if they are it's only reflected glory but the text says the glory of god of the lord shone around them so i want to pause and think about what what's going on there and, and this you know luke is has researched this he's this is really his testimony at this point but, but I think it's important for us to understand that, that the glory of the Lord here is the glory of God. It's the Shekinah glory. The glory of the Lord was manifest many times in the Old Testament. 
right? Some notable times were when Moses and the nation of Israel were on Mount Sinai or near Mount Sinai. Moses was going up on Mount Sinai. And the glory of the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai. I just want to read to you from Exodus 24, just verses 16 to 17, to help, help us understand what's, what Luke is saying. It says that here, this is, this is Moses writing in Exodus, The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses, that is God, called to Moses from the midst of the, crowd, of the cloud, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of God was like, what? A consuming fire on the mountaintop. So for the Israelites who were down at the base of the mountain, as they looked up at the glory of the Lord, it looked like the mountain was on fire, but wasn't burning. Kind of reminds you of the burning bush, right? The, the, the bush that was on fire, but not burned up. So like a consuming fire. Now, kind of helps you understand why the shepherds reacted the, the way that they did. If you see in verse 9, they were terribly frightened. The angel appears, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Why? Because God was demonstrating his presence. He was visibly demonstrating his presence there, and that had them terrified. The angel consoles them, tells them that he's not bringing bad news, but good news. But keep in mind that Shekinah glory appeared to Moses on that mountaintop. It appeared again when Solomon dedicated the temple that Solomon built. And again, I'll just read to you there from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Again, this is to help us understand what the shepherds were seeing, were experiencing. It says, now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing fire come down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Notice the response. They, they worship the Lord and it isn't like, oh, this God is like, he's really powerful. He's really mean. We better do what he says. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. Right? Truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. Many years later, Ezekiel records the departure of the glory of God. After repeated attempts by God to call the Israelites to repentance, the repeated failure, God repeated rescuing. In Ezekiel, we read through several passages, the glory of the Lord rising up from the cherubim within the temple, going to the top of the temple, and then departing the city. And it's gone. The glory of God is gone. After Ezekiel, you don't read about the glory of God. And amazingly, when does the glory of God appear next? To the shepherds. Do you know that? The glory of God is not seen from Ezekiel until the shepherds. Right? That's a statement from God himself. That this child come to earth that's the Lord's, it's reckoning the Lord's return. It's a foretaste of what we're going to see in the millennium and in eternity with, with the Lord. The, the Shekinah glory of God will not be seen again until the Lord comes back. 
to establish his kingdom on earth. We saw a little glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was up there with Moses and Elijah. But these are little glimpses. This is a statement from God that, that this little child was born. This is what the shepherds witnessed. Now do you understand why they, why they made haste to go to Bethlehem? They saw this. They heard the angel. They saw the glory of God. They knew it was God. They made haste to go see this child. But before they do that, what happens? A multitude of the heavenly host. The host uh, is a word that means like army. So sometimes you'll hear people say a, a heavenly army. But keep in mind, this isn't an army. This isn't a group of angels coming to do battle. This is a group of angels coming to declare that the Savior has been born. They come to declare glory to God. And the, the number of angels is uncountable. Right? It's massive. Only in Revelation do we read of such a, a group of angels all gathered together. So at this point in, in redemptive history, this is unprecedented. Never happened. It's never happened before. That you get this many angels all coming together in one place. And, and the text tells us that uh, what, the, what they said. Uh, Glory to God in the highest and earth and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now the way it's worded makes us sound like, well, if you, if you gain his pleasure, then, then you gain his grace. That's not what's going on here. So no one gains God's grace. He pours down his mercy and you receive it. That's the only part. You receive it. So, but, but the point I'm making here is that they, they said that. So a lot of people think, well, the angels didn't sing. I don't see how they could say that without singing it. So when I'm singing, I'm saying things. It doesn't mean I'm not singing, right? So the, the point here is that they gave glory to God. God brought all these angels. Can you imagine a countless number of angels? So the highest number in Greek that's actually a word is 10,000. So if it would have been 10,000, Luke could have said 10,000. Right? And in Revelation, we're told that it's myriads upon myriads, which is the word 10,000 upon 10,000. Right? So can you imagine Seeing so many angels all at once and they're all saying the same thing. Glory to God in the highest. That, that ha have an impression. Right? What a testimony. That's why the shepherds moved with haste. Right? God gave them such a testimony that very much convinced them of the certainty of the things of which they saw. So the, sh the, the shepherds were terribly frightened and the angel assured them that he wasn't coming to judge them, but, but to give them grace, to bring them joy. And, and the, the angel's message is that today in the city of David, there has been there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. There's only two places in the Gospels where Jesus is called a savior here. And in John four, when the uh, when Jesus is dealing with the Samaritans, the Samaritan village uh, actually recognized Jesus as the savior of the world. So it's the only place, only two places he's called savior of the world, savior other places. Um, and obviously he came to save people from their sins, but it's significant. The angels are saying that he has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. So the, the testimony of the angels to the shepherds. Right? The angels give testimony of, of the Lord. Just think about what the angels testimony is. The child has just been born. The child's name is Jesus. This this child is Christ the Lord. And. And he is that savior. 
Uh, he is God. That's what the testimony of the angels are declaring. Then there's the testimony of not only the angels, but also the shepherds. These lowly despised shepherds. Right? We've already talked about it, but what do they, how do they react? First with fear, but once they were assured that the angels weren't there to judge them. Once the angels departed, they did what? Look at that. Pick it up in, in verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this Christ. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in their heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. We don't know how many shepherds there were, but, but they go to Bethlehem. They find this babe exactly the way that the, the angel described him to them. And then described all that they had seen, all that they had been told. Can can imagine the, the shepherds, each of them wanting to share a little bit of facts. You know, when at home, when, when each of your kids are like sharing details uh, of certain things, they start chiming in, oh, this happened and this happened and this happened. And, and, and that's what I kind of imagine that the shepherds were like, even if there's one spokesman to say, oh, yeah, tell them about that. Oh, yeah, tell them about that. Right. And as they described all this to Mary and Joseph and those that were around them, what an amazing testimony that they give. They, they believed everything that the angels told them. Right? They believed everything that really God revealed to them through the, the Shekinah glory, the appearing of the glory of God. What a, what a wonderful testimony. The, the angels and the shepherds together combined. They are testifying to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He is God. He is the Lord. There's two other, two more testimonies that we want to look at very briefly, and we find those in also in Luke two. In Luke two, after Jesus was born, we'll pick up at verse twenty one. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, that is the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him in his arms, into his arms, and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And, and Simeon goes on to, to give Mary prophecy of, of not only of who Christ is in his glory, but of some of his sufferings that would come upon him and come upon even her own soul. But, but I just want to point out a few things of what 
Simeon tells us. First of all, we're told that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It means he was waiting for the redemption of Israel. He was waiting for Israel to be saved. What does that mean? Waiting upon. He was eagerly. He hadn't lost faith. He had looked at the scriptures. He knew God was trustworthy. So he was looking for the redemption of Israel. And through the Holy Spirit, he knew that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. What does that mean? The Messiah is close. Think about think about his days before before the period of that child. Hey, Simeon's old. He knows the time is short. God's either going to lengthen his days or the Messiah's here any moment. Right? What excitement that must have greeted Simeon every day. Lord, is this the day as he goes to the temple? Is today the day? And what Luke writes about, that day had come. Eight days after Jesus was born. That God providentially causes Simeon to be there when Mary and Joseph bring this child to the temple to, to carry out the the what the law of Moses tells him to carry out the circumcision and officially naming him. And he sees the Christ and the Holy Spirit immediately tells him that this is the Messiah. He takes him in his arms and, and think about what he, what's, what Simeon says there. He says in verse 29, now Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. That means he's seen the Messiah. He knows that he will soon die according to your word. That is, God has been faithful to bring about exactly what he said he would bring about. But look at verse 30. For my eyes have seen what? Your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. Again, he's prophetically and confidently speaking of what is going to happen in the future just by looking at this young child, yet baby, eight days old, newborn baby, holding that baby in his arms and say, my eyes have seen your salvation. That's, that's eyes of faith. It's his testimony that Jesus is who the scripture says he is, that he is the Christ, that he is the God. It, and, and he points to, uh, in verse 31, he says, which you have prepared, that salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, that means before all, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And, and notice there's a common theme in some of these prophecies that Jesus would be the light to bring darkness to those who, to bring uh, light into the land of darkness. What what a glorious testimony that is that that here is this little babe who is yet the Messiah who is the Savior, the Savior who is Christ, and and really what um, what Simeon was prophesied flows from passage in Isaiah Isaiah nine. I'll just read that to you, Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2. There, Isaiah says prophetically, but there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Those are Gentile lands, right? But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. So Simeon is speaking of, really paraphrasing Old Testament scripture, Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah about this little baby holding you, who, whom he held in his arms. And would, that baby would come to shine light upon the world. And, and Matthew uh, makes that connection. So if you would, just turn in, in your Bibles just very quickly to Matthew 4. 
Matthew 4, beginning of verse 12. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Prophecy of Isaiah reiterated by Simeon. Verse 12 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah spoke. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw great light, and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see that fulfilled, that Jesus is the light. So think about the testimony of Simeon. He is holding the child. This is the Savior. This is the redemption of Israel. And this is the light that's going to shine in the dark land of the Gentiles. And all that comes true. So based on this testimony, the child born to Mary is the Messiah. The one who redeem Israel and the one who bring light to the Gentiles. There's yet one more witness this morning. And that is the witness of Anna. Look at verses 36 and 38. Very short passage, but nonetheless profound. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Now, that's important because she, the tribe of Asher is one of the northern tribes. Sometimes you hear them talking about the lost tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom. They're not actually lost. God knows where they are. And here is one of them. Right? So even after all that, here you have a, a lady, godly lady from the tribe of Asher, right? one of those northern kingdoms, right? who is worshiping God in Jerusalem. True worshiper of God. So that's where she is. She was advanced in years. Kind of notice that Simeon's called old. She is advanced in years. So here is a good indication that, that she's much older than Simeon, actually. So it's worded, the way that it's worded there, it says that she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. So the way that it's worded, there's actually a, a fairly large debate as to whether she was, he was aged 84 or whether she had been a widow 84 years, which is very likely that she would have, she would have been married seven years, right? And then 84 years as a widow and she had devoted herself to the worship of God so much so that she never left the temple. What does that mean? Well, there were some rooms, like, like more like guest rooms around the temple, and they were typically occupied by priests. So it's very likely that the priest opened up one of those rooms for her to stay in so that she could stay there and pray and, and really, as a prophetess, would, would minister to the women who come to the temple. Right? So she would, she would point them to that. So when we, when we hear the word prophetess, it doesn't always mean foretelling the future. Actually, more times than not, it talks. About, it just means foretelling the word of God. It's reiterating the word of God. So she wasn't foretelling any future, at least in the passages we have here. So she was just reiterating what she had seen. So here's this, this godly lady. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And verse 38, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God. Now, you might think, well, what is she giving thanks to God for? Okay, connect it with what happened. Sometimes we segment scriptures too much. What had just happened? Simeon did what? Saw baby Jesus, took him in his arms, glorified God and gave a prophecy of what this child was. 
right? Then you have Anna, who never left the temple nearby. Not stated in scripture, but implied by the context, she was listening. She was listening to Simeon's testimony. And what's her response? This godly woman who prayed, she gave thanks to God. So that alone is her testimony that, that this was the Christ. That she believed this little baby was the Messiah. And then notice what she does next. And continued, that means later on, after the fact, and continued to speak of him to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So all those who are waiting and, and anticipating the Messiah, she was speaking to them and encouraging to them that the Messiah was here. He was born. So she, was not, she not only gave thanks, she not only believed the message, but she was telling others about the Messiah. Sort of like the same kind of pattern that we are to have. If you believe in Christ, it's not just for your own benefit. It's for you to go tell someone else. So Anna is living out an example of, of what we as believers are, are called to do. So just think about all these witnesses. All, right? all these witnesses, the cumulative witness of those who were alive at the time of the birth of Christ, is that he is, he is the Messiah. He is God. Don't be detracted by the Satan's ploys. Right? And Satan is alive and well today, although contained. He is alive and well. And he is spreading his lies all over the land. And they're growing in intensity and fervency to cause people to doubt all that we've read. They will cast doubt on all the, the, the witness testimony. Satan gets in there like a cross-examiner and begins saying, did God really say? Was the virgin really a virgin? And they just begin casting doubts on one miracle after another, one testimony after another. But remember, beloved, you will never know the truth outside of the word of God. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. Read it. And believe it. And not just believe it, but respond appropriately. That means if you're here this morning and you're, you're not sure whether Jesus is your Savior or not, you need to repent of your sins and recognize that, that God sent you a Savior because you are a sinner. You're going to face uh, condemnation if you do not accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that's an eternal condemnation. That's eternal damnation. But God will rescue you from that if you will call to him as your savior. Even today, today will be the day of your salvation. If you will but just call upon him as your savior, trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and to grant you eternal life. For those that have already committed their lives to Christ, who have Christ as their savior, don't walk away from these testimonies unchanged. Allow them to stir your heart. Allow them to strengthen your faith. Look at, at, at the body of witnesses. You know how Hebrews talks about a cloud of witnesses? That's not talking about people who can actually see everything in heaven. The cloud of witnesses are the testimony. Those who have gone before us. You look at them and you see their faith. You see their testimony. And that's to strengthen your faith. And, and to help you testify of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. The Lord wants you to bear witness of who he is. He wants you to know him personally, of course, but he wants you to bear witness of that. And what better day to do that than on Christmas Day? Right? Many, many of us will be meeting with those who, in our families, maybe not all of them are saved. 
maybe most of them. Some of you come from families where, where very few, if any other, there are any other believers in your extended natural family. So be a loving but bold witness of who Christ is. Will people say, make fun of you? Of course they will. Don't expect them not to. The, the story of the virgin birth, I mean, that's ridiculous if on human standards. But it's true because the word of God has said it. And the word of God has brought many witnesses together to testify to that. So today on, on the Lord's Day, on Christmas Day, right, celebrate him. Right? Give him praise. Give him glory. Have fun with your families. Exchange gifts. But remember, who is at the center of our joy? Without Christ, we would live in a very dark world. But because the sunrise on, from on high has visited us and brought us God's mercy, today is a day of joy. It's a day of rejoicing, no matter what difficulties you're going through. Because the Lord reigns, and he is coming back, and he will come back to establish his kingdom. And you will see then, now you live by faith, and you trust in him. Now let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are just so thankful that you you have accommodated yourself to us by revealing yourself so clearly and giving us your trustworthy word and giving us so many witnesses. But you didn't have to do that. You could just say something once, two or three times, like the law of Moses says. But Lord, you've given us an abundance of witnesses who are all testifying to who this child is. Oh Lord, work in each person's heart today to help them know Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior. It's the name of Jesus.